This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Comeback Kid is at it again. Welcome to the program. You know who the Comeback Kid is, right? You heard me name Donald J. Trump the Comeback Kid numerous segments ago. Poking some fun around with uh, Donald likes to have nicknames for people. Crooked Hillary. Little Marco. And uh, I said, I'm going to find a name for Donald Trump. And I said, the comeback kid. He got his mojo back. I knew he would. Like I said, he's he's doing the rope-a-dope. With the media, he's doing the rope-a-dope. With the left. And every time the left thinks they, got him, they have him counted out. They got him on the mat. He's on the ropes and they're pummeling him. The media working overtime to try to bring them down. The reason why the media is so invested this time, you know, they always do this to the Republican nominee. Did it to Romney. Eh, McCain, not so much because McCain wasn't going anywhere anyway. They didn't see a, a need to pound on the war hero unnecessarily. But they are afraid because they sense something's different here. And so do I. I've said that to you. Something's different in this presidential cycle. And Donald Trump has tapped into that. It's why he won the primary for the Republican nomination against all odds. Everyone, all the pundits, all the media elite, both conservative and liberal, including some of the candidates. Remember Marco Rubio? I'm not picking on him. He will not be our candidate. Everyone counted this man out. And now that we're in the general election chapter, people are still counting him out, including some of you, I said some of you, who continue to get discouraged over the turn of events. The media is pounding on him. Trump is engaging in an asymmetrical approach to a presidential election. He's not a politician, remember. And he seems to get off course. And I'm not going to suggest that that I haven't raised my eyebrows over some of the things that Trump has said and done. I mean, even in the primary. But you go with what works. There's an angry voter sentiment out there, and he tapped into it. This thing is starting to boil. That that simmer of voter anger is starting to boil. What I'm seeing, what I'm sensing, and I get to travel all over the country now. So I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people, a lot of good Americans. And I think what's going to carry Donald Trump is the new voter. The voter who has checked out of the last few presidential election out of cynicism. 
where they've said to themselves, we've had it. We're not participating anymore. Well, they see something in Donald Trump that gives them hope that we, the people, can get this government back. We'll talk about that later in the, in the program as well, the angry voter. Why are voters angry? A piece by Myron Magnet from uh, City, City Journal magazine, a magazine from the uh, Manhattan Institute. So Donald Trump taps into this. And Donald Trump gets us as voters, as we the people at ground level, grassroots, who've been left out of the equation. So as you know, he came to Milwaukee and uh, did a town hall. I participated in that. And he delivered a law and order speech. Basically, it was an appeal to black voters. It threw everybody, everybody. He actually pleaded for blacks to vote for him. I thought that was unprecedented. From a Republican candidate, or not just for president, pleading, pointing out to blacks the obvious, your life is crap. Your life is crap because of progressive policies. Liberal, Democrat, modern liberalism has destroyed your communities. I said in a tweet that the cotton fields have been replaced by the American ghetto where Democrat is hoarding the black community, black people. Used to do it in cotton fields during the time of slavery. Now they're doing it in the American ghetto. They got them neatly packed away. No place for them to go. They're trapped. Just where liberal Democrats want them. So Trump comes out. He's talking right to black voters. And of course, the left, the media, the lamestream media, they knew, they looked at this and said, what is this? The rope-a-dope again. They're pounding away at him and they think they have him softened up. It's just a matter of time before he hits the mat. And all of a sudden he throws a couple haymakers and staggers them. I love those analogies. Boxing. The sweet science. Boxing. So, of course, they go on the attack, right? And he starts to criticize. Well, he did it from white communities. So what? I don't care where he gave the speech from. You're nitpicking. Had he gone to Ebenezer Baptist Church and delivered that speech, the left would have given the same response. They would have attacked it. They would have found some other reason to attack it. They wouldn't have been able to say he he did it from a white community. They'd have found some other reason. You know what they want? You know what they're trying to goad him into? They're going into some black community where the left, the Democrats, will have their goon squads ready to show up at the appearance, at the speech, at the rally, and create utter chaos. We probably won't even be able to get the speech off to keep interrupting them. They want that. They want that visual. 
He's smarter than that. Donald Trump gets us. He gets the black community. They're in misery because of monolithic voting for Democrats. He doesn't have to get a huge contingent of black voters. All he really has to do is keep blacks where they are right now in terms of Mrs. Bill Clinton. They're not excited about her. She's going to have a hard time turning them out in large numbers, and she's going to need record numbers. She's got to outdo Barack Obama. How in the hell is Mrs. Bill Clinton going to get more black voters, not percentage, folks, volume, more black voters than Barack Obama, who in two elections turned out record numbers of blacks? Ain't going to happen. She's not connected to us And we are connected to her, emotionally. Her and that goofy going into that church last time she ran against Barack Obama with her southern drawl. Remember that? Just pandering, just embarrassing, because she doesn't get us. So, again, don't pay attention to the polls. I'm not, I'm here they're tightening, and I don't care. You know what? I don't know how they're going to capture the sometimes voter. The one who hasn't voted in the last, even last presidential election, but let's say the last two might come back. And if they turn out in November, Donald Trump is going to win this thing walking away. Coming up, we're going to uh, hear a piece from, I'm going to read a piece from Hans von Spakovsky, great thinker, uh, took, out the Washington Post. And then we're going to hear from Heather McDonald, a piece on our cops racist. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Okay, in this segment, we're going to talk a little police. That still remains a hot-button issue. You know, I'm on this mission to defend the honor, the character, the service, the commitment, the sacrifice, the integrity of the American police officer. And I came across a, a friend of the police, Hans von Spakovsky. He's an attorney, uh, writer, wrote a column in the National Review, and then after I go through this column, we're going to listen to another good friend of mine, Heather McDonald. She's written and and researched and explored incessantly about the nature of police. She's done empirical research, by the way. She knows how to do it. And we're going to listen to her on uh, a piece she did, Prager University, Our Cops Racist. But let's start with Hans von Spakovsky's column. This is in a National Review Online, as I said. Implicit bias at the Washington Post. Joe Davidson, the federal insider columnist for the Washington Post, recently published a fawning article 
about the implicit bias training that has been ordered for all Justice Department law enforcement officers and prosecutors by Deputy Attorney General Sally Q. Yates and her boss, Attorney General Loretta Lynch. It is obvious from the column that Davidson has drunk the Kool-Aid on the claim that most of us carry some implicit bias that influences our behavior. Nowhere in the column does David mention any of the questions that have been raised about the implicit bias tests, implicit association tests or IATs, from which this theory is derived. For example, a 2012 analysis of the Employee Relation Law Journal points out that social science findings on unconscious racism are contested research. This research is a subject of vigorous debate within psychology. Experts citing IAT research often mischaracterize the findings from this body of work and omit important limitations on the research, emphasis added. After describing what the DOJ is forcing on its employees, Davidson launches an out-of-the-blue attack on me. He cites Yates' claim that most people don't really recognize they're carrying around the bias, particularly people who believe themselves to be fair-thinking, non-prejudiced folks, and adds, I wonder if that fits Hans von Spakovsky. He also seems to mock my claim that the bias I saw there when I worked at DOJ's Civil Rights Division toward, was towards whites, not blacks. Davidson must be unaware of the sworn testimony of Christopher Coates, former chief of the voting section of the Civil Rights Division, before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in 2010. Coates described the culture of animus within the division towards race-neutral enforcement of voting rights laws. The voter intimidation case against the new Black Panther Party was not pursued because the division did not want to enforce the voting rights acts against black defendants, even if there were members they were members of a racist hate group. If the intimidation had been carried out by white Klansmen, that would have been a different story. Coates also recounted the harassment directed at him and others who worked on another case in Mississippi where black officials were discriminating against white voters. Lawyers inside the division did not believe the Justice Department should prosecute blacks or other racial minorities for engaging in discrimination, no matter how illegal or how ugly. The Washington Post has declined to publish my response to Davidson's attack. For those interested in another viewpoint, one which, unlike Davidson's, does not accept the implicit bias claim as gospel truth, here's that letter. Here's his letter to the editor. In his recent column praising implicit bias training at the Justice Department, Joe Davidson includes a gratuitous swipe at me that is unfair, uncalled for, and beneath the usual standards of the post. He snidely suggests that I should talk to Howard University's Lenz Herbert, who claims that the United States has a scourge of officers killing unarmed black people in extraordinarily disproportionate numbers. I would suggest instead that Davidson and Herbert start looking at actual evidence on this issue. Serious questions have been raised about the credibility, reliability, and validity of the supposed science behind implicit bias testing. As for the scourge of disproportionate killings, they might familiarize themselves with statistics from the Justice Department, which show blacks disproportionately commit crimes. In 2009, in our 75 largest counties, blacks were involved in 62% of all robberies, 57% of all murders, and 45% of all assaults, while representing only 15% of the population. Less than a third of the individuals killed by police are black, despite the fact that they commit crimes at a much higher race a much higher rate than other racial ethnic groups. Thus, when police are apprehending armed defendants, 
they will be disproportionately confronting black criminals. That is why, according to the FBI, black criminals also represented 40% of cop killers from 2005 to 2014. He closes it out by saying, the only implicit bias I have is to look at the facts and the hard evidence instead of making unsupported claims against the law enforcement officers who risk their lives every day to protect members of the public, no matter their skin color. Now let's listen to Heather McDonald. Does the truth matter? Not to groups like Black Lives Matter. That's tragic for many reasons, not the least of which is that black lives are being lost as a result. When it comes to the subject of American police, blacks, and the deadly use of force, here is what we know. A recent deadly force study by Washington State University researcher Lois James found that police officers were less likely to shoot unarmed black suspects than unarmed white or Hispanic ones in simulated threat scenarios. Harvard economics professor Roland Fryer analyzed more than 1,000 officer-involved shootings across the country. He concluded that there is zero evidence of racial bias in police shootings. In Houston, he found that blacks were 24% less likely than whites to be shot by officers, even though the suspects were armed or violent. Does the truth matter? An analysis of the Washington Post's police shooting database and of federal crime statistics reveals that fully 12% of all whites and Hispanics who die of homicide are killed by cops. By contrast, only 4% of black homicide victims are killed by cops. But isn't it a sign of bias that blacks make up 26% of police shooting victims, but only 13% of the national population? It is not, and common sense suggests why. Police shootings occur more frequently where officers confront armed or violently resisting suspects. Those suspects are disproportionately black. According to the most recent study by the Department of Justice, although blacks were only about 15% of the population in the 75 largest counties in the U.S., they were charged with 62% of all robberies, 57% of murders, and 45% of assaults. In New York City, blacks commit over three-quarters of all shootings, though they are only 23% of the city's population. Whites, by contrast, commit under 2% of all shootings in the city, though they are 34% of the population. New York's crime disparities are repeated in virtually every racially diverse city in America. The real problem facing inner-city black communities today is not the police, but criminals. In 2014, over 6,000 blacks were murdered, more than all white and Hispanic homicide victims combined. Who is killing them? Not the police, and not white civilians, but other blacks. In fact, a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male then an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. If the police ended all use of lethal force tomorrow, it would have a negligible impact on the black death by homicide rate. In Chicago, through just the first six and a half months of 2016, over 2,300 people were shot. That's a shooting an hour during some weekends. The vast majority of the victims were black. 
During the same period, the Chicago police shot 12 people, all armed and dangerous. That's one half of 1% of all shootings. Does the truth matter? If it does, here's a truth worth pondering. There is no government agency more dedicated to the proposition that black lives matter than the police. The proactive policing revolution that began in the mid-1990s has dramatically brought down the inner-city murder rate and saved tens of thousands of black lives. Unfortunately, that crime decline is now in jeopardy. As I write in my book, The War on Cops, police officers are backing off of proactive policing in black neighborhoods thanks to the false narrative that police officers are infected with homicidal bias. As a result, violent crime is going up. In cities with large black populations, homicides in 2015 rose anywhere from 54% in Washington, D.C. to 90% in Cleveland. Overall, in the nation's 56 largest cities, homicides in 2015 rose 17%, a nearly unprecedented one-year spike. Many law-abiding residents of high-crime areas beg the police to maintain order, precisely the type of policing that the ACLU, progressive politicians, and the Obama Justice Department denounce as racist. This is tragic because when the police refrain from proactive policing, black lives are lost, lost because of a myth. The best research and data reach this conclusion. There is no evidence that police are killing blacks just because they're black. You now have the truth. Does it matter? This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Casper is made in America. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash Clark. That's casper.com, promo code Clark. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash Clark. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff. We're back. Thanks for joining me today. You know, after that horrible, ugly week in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the week before uh, this current week, uh, you probably heard about the riots that occurred after a police shooting. Law enforcement officer of Milwaukee Police Department shot and killed an armed suspect who had a stolen gun. Individual had a criminal history, lengthy criminal history for being as young as he was. And the culturally dysfunctional black underclass. You notice how I cut out that segment? You know, I mean, I sliced it. I didn't say the entire black community. But the culturally dysfunctional black underclass tried to use the the death of this criminal. Confronted a law enforcement officer while he was armed. Tried to hold him up as some sort of symbol of police mistreatment of blacks. And I did a lot of media on it during the week, both uh, TV and radio and newspaper. And there was a writer who came to town 
from the LA Times, the LA Times feeling a need to get in on the act. And he interviewed me about it extensively. We talked over a half hour and I gave him a lot to support my positions and what's really going on in Milwaukee. You heard me talk about the urban pathologies that exist in the American ghetto. They're the same in Chicago, same in Baltimore, same in St. Louis, same in Washington, D.C., and any other place that has a ghetto, a large segment of the culturally dysfunctional black underclass. And so he writes this column and basically turns it into a race issue. This, this writer for the L.A. Times apparently is a race writer. I didn't know there was such a thing that newspapers actually had race writers. But anyway, he turns it into a race issue and he points out the white police chief versus the black sheriff, Ed Flynn, flaming liberal, soft, anti-gun. He prefers the soft approach to fighting crime. And me, as you know, you know where I am on it. So it was a very bias toward Ed Flynn and that that's the way to go and that I'm all wrong. Which is fine. I, I don't care about that stuff. People can write what they want. But anyway, Thomas Sowell, you've heard me talk about Thomas Sowell, scholar from the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. He wrote an opinion piece on that story. I want to share that with you. He calls it a clash of police policies. This occurred in a real clear politics. It says, amid the riding in Milwaukee, there's also a clash between two leading lawmen there, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark and the city's police chief, Ed Flynn. They have very different opinions about how law enforcement should be carried out. Chief Ed Flynn expresses the view long prevalent among those who emphasize the social root causes of crime, such as income disparities and educational disparities, as well as the larger society's neglect of black communities. Chief Flynn puts less emphasis on aggressive police action and more on community outreach and gun control. Sheriff David Clark represents an opposition, an opposite tradition in which the job of the police is to enforce the law as forcefully as necessary, not to make excuses for law-breaking or to ease up on enforcing the law in hopes that this will mollify rioters. Sheriff Clark would also like to see law-abiding blacks be armed. Differences of opinion on law enforcement are sharp and unmistakable and have been for more than 50 years. However, as the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Unfortunately, facts seem to play a remarkably small role in clashes over law enforcement policy, and that too has been true for more than 50 years. In his memoirs, the United States Supreme Court Justice Chief Earl Warren declared that all of us must assume a share of the responsibility for rising crime rates in the 1960s because for decades we have swept under the rug the slum conditions that breed crime. And that's what I brought out that week. But the hard fact is that the murder rate in the country as a whole was going down during those very decades when social problems in the slums were supposedly being neglected. Homicide rates among black males went down by 18% in the 1940s, 
and by 22% in the 1950s. It was in the 1960s when the ideas of Chief Justice Warren and others triumphed that this long decline in homicide rates among black males reversed and skyrocketed by 89%, wiping out all the progress of the previous 20 years. The same reversal in the country at large saw murder rates by 1974 more than twice as high as in 1960. This was after the murder rate had been cut in half where it had been in the 1930s. Ghetto riots, which erupted in the 1960s, were blamed on poverty and discrimination. But what were the facts? Poverty and discrimination were worse in the South than in the rest of the country. But ghetto riots were not nearly as common in the South. The most deadly ghetto riot of the 1960s occurred in Detroit, where 43 people were killed, 33 of whom were black. In Detroit at the time, black median family income was 95% of white median family income. The unemployment rate among blacks was 3.4% and black home ownership was higher in Detroit than in any other major city. What was different about Detroit was that politicians put the police under orders that restricted their response to riots, and some rioters said, the fuzz is scared, quote. It was black victims who paid the highest price for letting rioters run, run amok. By contrast, Chicago's 1960s mayor, Richard Daley, came on television to say that he had ordered the police to shoot and kill rioters who started fires. There was outrage among the politically correct across the country. But Chicago, with a larger population than Detroit, had no such death rates and riots. In later years, New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani's aggressive police policies in high crime neighborhood, cut the murder rate down to a fraction of what it had been before. But in England, opposite policies prevailed with what London Daily's Telegraph newspaper referred to as politically correct policing that has police acting more like social workers than upholding law and order. Although England had long been regarded as one of the most law-abiding nations on earth, riots that swept through London, Manchester, and other British cities in 2011 were virtually identical to riots in Ferguson, Baltimore, and other American cities. Most of the British rioters were white, but what they did was the same, right down to setting police cars on fire. But do facts matter anymore? Thomas Sowell piece from Real Clear Politics. You know, it's guys like this that that, that we ought to be paying attention to and, and less of people like Barack Obama, Mrs. Bill Clinton, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, the usual race hustlers, Sean King or whatever his name is, the guy who uh, faked being black for decades. But we get more of them, we get less of reasoned, reasoned opinion from that of Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is my friend. Thomas Sowell is a mentor to me. And I'll tell you what, if we can get back to the stuff that he talked about, that style of policing is the type of policing I came into in 1978. You keep your foot on the neck of the criminal. Lawfully, of course. 
but you keep the pressure on. Full court press. You keep them on the run. You send a clear and convincing message that their antisocial, anarchist behavior will not stand. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. On the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. In the final segment, we're going to end somewhat along the way we started talking about the current presidential election current state, I came across another article. You know, I'm a voracious reader. Love to read. I read for knowledge. I don't read for entertainment. I don't read John Grisham and that sort of stuff. I don't have anything against that. It's just, I read for knowledge. People ask me what, what I do in my quiet time, how I relax. I read. And because I came across a couple of good articles that may not appear in the Mainstream media, uh, I share with those things with you from time to time. Great reading. And I came across one such article out of City Journal Magazine. That's the magazine of the Manhattan Institute, a think tank. It's the same uh, entity that Heather McDonald belongs to. I think she's a Thomas Smith Fellow, Thomas A. Smith Fellow at the uh, Manhattan Institute. And this one's by Myron Magnet, who's a regular writer for the City Journal magazine. I've read a lot of stuff by him. Uh, he kind of gets it, and, and, and he, he's able to articulate it in a way that's easy to understand. He's not one of these guys that talks over people's heads, tries to impress people. He doesn't try to impress people how smart he is, even though he is an intelligent guy. And he doesn't need to always put that on display. So he writes this article in the uh, current edition, and it's called, Why Are Voters So Angry? You heard me talk about the rise of Donald Trump and why that was. I'm just going to read excerpts. It's a pretty lengthy article, and it take too long for me to read, so I pull out some excerpts. He kind of gets it like Donald Trump does. So here's what it says. Haunting this year's presidential contest is the sense that the U.S. government no longer belongs to the people and no longer represents them. And this uneasy feeling is not misplaced. It reflects the real state of affairs. We have lost the government we learned about in civics class with its democratic election of representatives to do the voters' will and framing laws which the president vows to execute faithfully unless the Supreme Court rules them unconstitutional. That small government of limited powers that the founders designed, heads with checks and balances, hasn't operated for a century. All of its parts still have their old names. They appear to be carrying out their old functions. 
But in fact, a new kind of government has grown up inside the old structure, like those parasites hatched in another organism that grow by eating up their host from within until the adult creatures burst out of the host's carcass. This transformation is not an evolution, but a usurpation. What has now largely displaced the founder's government of what is called is what is called the administrative state, a transformation pre-mediated by its main architect, Woodrow Wilson, the thin-skinned, self-righteous college college professor president who thought himself enlightened far beyond the citizenry, isn't that typical of most liberals, dismissed the Declaration of Independence and Alienable Rights as so much outmoded nonsense, and he rejected the founders' clunky constitutional machinery as obsolete. What a modern country needed, he said, was a living constitution that would keep pace with the fast-changing times by continual Darwinian adaptation, as he called it, affected by federal courts acting as a permanent constitutional convention. Modernity, Wilson thought, demanded efficient government by independent, nonpartisan, benevolent, hyper-educated experts applying the latest scientific, economic, and sociological knowledge to industrial capitalism's unprecedented problems too complex for self-governing free citizens to solve. This is the arrogance, folks, of, of these progressives. Back to the story. Accordingly, he got Congress to create executive branch administrative agencies such as the Federal Trade Commission, to do the job. During the Great Depression, President Franklin Roosevelt proliferated such agencies from the National Labor Relations Board and the Federal Housing Administration to the Federal Federal Communications Commission and the Security and Exchange Commission to put the New Deal into effect. Before they could do so, though, FDR had to scare the Supreme Court into stretching the Constitution's Commerce Clause beyond recognition, putting the federal government in charge of all economic activity, not just interstate transactions. He also had to pressure the justices to allow Congress to delegate delegate legislative power, which is in effect what the lawmakers did by setting up agencies with the power to make binding rules. The Constitution, of course, vests all legislative powers in Congress empowering it to make laws, not to make legislators. But the administrative state's constitutional transgressions cut deeper still. If Congress can't delegate its legislative powers, it certainly can't delegate judicial powers, which the Constitution gives exclusively to the judiciary. Nonetheless, after these administrative agencies make rules like a legislature, they then exercise judicial authority like a court by prosecuting violators violations of their edicts and inflicting real criminal penalties such as fines and cease and desist orders. As they perform all these functions, they also violate the principle of the separation of powers, which lies at the heart of our constitutional theory, senselessly curbing efficiency, Wilson thought as well as the due process of law, for they trample a citizen's Fifth Amendment rights not to lose his property unless indicted by a grand jury and tried by a jury of his peers, and they search a citizen or company's private papers or premises without bothering to get judge-issued subpoenas or search warrants based on probable probable cause flouting the Fourth Amendment. They can issue waivers to their rules so that the law is not the same for all citizens and companies, but is instead an instrument of arbitrary power. 
Boy, hasn't Barack Obama exploited that. FDR himself ruefully remarked that he expanded a fourth branch of government that lacked constitutional legitimacy. Not only does it reincarnate the arbitrary power of the Stuarts' tyrannical star chamber, but it also doesn't even meet the minimal conditions of liberty that Magna Carta set forth 801 years ago. Goes on to say that the result was a spectacular expansion of the administrative state with some 150 new agencies and commissions created. No one knows the exact number. And these agencies purposely removed the administrative state even further from government by the people. One agency, the Independent, Independent Payment Advisory Board, the so-called death panel, is so democratically unaccountable that Congress can only abolish it by a 3 fifth vote in both houses within a seven-month period next year. After that, the law bans Congress from altering any of the board's edicts, a provision as far from democratic self-government as you can get. When the administration finally confronted the financial crisis, linked by Obamacare's disincentives to hiring, it, its reflex response was to expand the administrative state still further with the Dodd-Frank Act, named for its two legislative sponsors, both of whom had been in bed with the mortgage racket, one figuratively and one literally. Goes on to say that, in the end, this is the, the part that kind of wraps it up, I think it ties a nice little bow around it. What citizens want to know, of all the world's people who seek to live in America, are gov- that our government will admit only those who come here legally, whose families will not harm us, and who will add to the wealth of the nation, not reap, what they have not sown. After all, public safety, not clean energy or national health care, is government's purpose. How many times haven't you heard me say that? And the story ends by saying, the, sorry about that. When Theodore Roosevelt, who unsuccessfully ran against Woodrow Wilson in 1912 on the Progressive Party ticket, first declared his intention to go into politics, his fellow clubmen jeered at him for wanting to associate with the saloon keepers, horse car conductors, and other rough and brutal characters running the nation's political parties. I answered, recalled TR, that if this were so, it merely meant that the people I knew did not belong to the governing class and that other people did, and that I intended to be one of the governing class. That's the true voice of progressivism, he said. As the founders often caution, a self-governing republic doesn't have a governing class. Part of America's current predicament is that it now has such a class and the American people are very angry about it. Myron Magnet, City Journal. It's all the time we have for today. Follow me during the week on Twitter at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, and at thepeoplesheriff.com. David Clark, The People's Sheriff on the Blaze Radio Network.